Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent. And down the line, we have Javier Blas, our Africa editor. Today, we'll be discussing HSBC as it emerges that the bank has considered the idea of uh, floating its UK business. Second topic of the day is the latest fines for banks over the LIBOR scandal. And finally, Bob's back. Bob Diamond is re-emerging as a force in banking in Africa. First, though, Daniel, to the HSBC story, as we wrote in Monday's newspaper. This is the potentially big story that the UK's biggest bank has looked at the idea of floating off its UK operations. It seems like it's an early stage idea, but they have been sounding out investors and they've talked about it internally a bit. What would this look like, this bank, do you think? How likely is it to happen? In a way, it would go back to an acquisition that HSBC made 20 years ago, which is Midlands Bank. We don't know yet whether they would rebrand it as such or not, but in a way, a UK-listed retail bank, still presumably majority-owned by HSBC, would very much go back to the sort of values of a old-fashioned Midland bank as we've seen it two decades ago. And their thinking at HSBC is still at a very early stage. But what this thought process really shows is how banks such as HSBC and other UK banks have to think about incoming regulation, particularly the Vickers reform, which will force them to ring fence their domestic retail operations. And this could be a way to actually solve the problem. I think the thinking really is that if you're going to go jumping through all the hoops to create this ring-fenced entity, which essentially has to be UK retail and commercial banking, then why not go the whole hog and list something, especially at a time when there seems to be a lot of investor demand for these traditionally focused UK entities. And we're seeing a lot of these banks coming to market in the next one or two years anyway, so it would be a good time to do it now. Lloyds is forced by the EU commission because of state aid rules to float its TSB brand, which it is planning to do next year. And Royal Bank of Scotland, similarly, because of state aid rules, will float under its traditional Williams and Glynn's brand by 2015. So there are two banks that have sort of revived their old high street banking brands and are bringing them to an IPO market that is increasingly interested in investing in UK high street banks as a way to basically follow the UK economic recovery. Now, we should say that the report that we wrote was sourced basically from talking to investors and also people inside the bank. But despite that, the bank seems to have been telling analysts this morning that there is little or no truth in the story. Why might they be doing that, do you think? It's an interesting question. I'm slightly puzzled about this as well. I think an explanation could be that they haven't briefed all the shareholders maybe yet on this and it just sounded 
some key investors out about this and might not want the story to be out at this stage when they haven't finalized their thinking about it. Yeah, as you say, it's fairly early stage. And I think definitively they haven't decided either way whether this is something they want to do. Given that the FT has written about it now, if they in the end decide, actually, it's not such a good idea and we don't want to do it, everybody would interpret it as a vault phase and a U-turn. So in that sense, from their perspective, it might make sense to deny it now. We should move on to our second topic of the day, which is the latest incarnation of the LIBOR scandal. Last week, we saw another clutch of banks getting fined an aggregate 1.7 billion euros. This is over accusations that they manipulated both the Euribor rate, this is the European cousin of LIBOR, and also the Japanese version of LIBOR, Yen LIBOR. And how many banks in total were fined, Daniel? There were six financial institutions in total, five banks and one into the broker, R.P. Martin, which received a fairly small fine. And um, what's interesting about this is, although some of them were ones that we knew of because they'd settled already on LIBOR with the UK and US authorities, among others, so the likes of Barclays and RBS and UBS, we didn't know so much about some of the others that have yeah. appeared, a couple of US banks for the first time. Yeah. The US angle is very interesting because for the first time we've seen two U.S. banking giants being dragged into the LIBOR affair, J.P. Morgan being one of them and Citigroup the other. Both were fined on Yen LIBOR. Both received not the highest fines compared to the other banks, compared to, say, RBS or Deutsche. But J.P. Morgan still received an 80 million fine and Citigroup a 70 million fine. And J.P. Morgan also, interestingly, is among the banks that are fighting a settlement on Euribor. So both JP Morgan, HSBC and Credit Agricole are fighting this. So if they lose this battle with the European Commission, they might still end up having to pay a fine one or two years down the line on Euribor as well. The other interesting thing about it is that it shows that those two US banks might be in the frame for a potential settlement with UK and US prosecutors maybe next year as well. We don't really know the details of that and when and if it's going to happen. But what the EU settlement definitely has shown is there has been some US involvement as well. And it comes at a time when some bankers, particularly here in London, have been asking the question why the US regulators haven't gone after the US banks on this particular issue as well. They suspected a slight national bias. The banks that have settled so far have all been European. So we had Barclays, RBS, UBS, Rabobank, and then interdealer broker ICAB, all of which were European. Thank you very much for that, Daniel. We should move on to our final topic, which is news that Bob Diamond, the former chief executive of Barclays, is back in financial services. I'm joined now on the line from Johannesburg by Javier Blas, our Africa editor. Javier, thanks for joining us. Among all the things you've been doing in Africa, including following the celebrations and commiserations around the death of Nelson Mandela, you've also dug out this story about Bob Diamond, the former head of Barclays, and what he's planning to do with his first, really, reincarnation post-Barclays. What exactly is he up to? Well, he is trying to raise about $250 million for an acquisition vehicle, in fact, a car shell that he hopes to float on the London Stock Exchange just before Christmas, so in the next couple of weeks. And his intention is using those $250 million to take a bet on Africa and banking. We don't know exactly the location, although Mr. Diamond has been traveling recently to Nigeria and talking to officials there. And Nigeria, obviously, is one of the leading economies in Africa. 
that what we know is that he's very interested in the banking sector. Considering that he is planning to raise about $250 million and that he could leverage that money, he could actually buy almost anything outside South Africa in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, it's a very interesting development because he's kind of disappeared from view for the past year or so, ever since in the summer of 2012 he left Barclays. In the past few months he's set up his own what he's called a merchant bank called Atlas Capital in the States. But this latest idea, which is his first real business venture for Atlas Capital, would be a joint venture between Atlas and a Ugandan entrepreneur. Is that right? Indeed. It's a joint venture with Akif Takar, a 32-year-old British-born, but has spent most of his life in between Rwanda and Uganda, and now lives in Dubai. And he's one of those young entrepreneurs in Africa. The conglomerate he created, called Mara Group, is valued around a billion dollars. Mr. Tucker is often referred as Africa's youngest billionaire, and he doesn't like that tag. And he explains that he doesn't own the whole of Mara Group, although he has never disclosed exactly how the ownership was. But in fact, he's the chief executive of Mara Group. The conglomerate is a billion dollar worth signals what uh, this gentleman is capable, yeah, considering that he started the business around 15 years ago at the age of 15 years old with $6,000 that he borrowed from his father. So that's the business partner of Rod Diamond for his Africa venture. Well, as you say, it's fascinating from that angle, and obviously from the angle of the re-emergence of Bob Diamond as well. And we'll be watching very closely what exactly happens with this new Atlas Mara venture when it lists in London, we think, within the next few weeks. Thanks very much, Javier, for joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Daniel and Javier for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.